and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're talking about patience through trials this morning. Patience through trials. You know, we all face difficult situations, circumstances, perhaps even for some of us, some degree of persecution in our life. But how we respond to these difficult situations and circumstances reveals the truth of our character. And a lot of it really does come down to our relationship with Jesus Christ. The strength that He gives us, the maturity that comes, the ability to learn to trust in Him through every circumstance that comes our way. We've said many times that God is a sovereign God. And because He is a sovereign God, He can do whatever He wants with our lives, right? He doesn't have to get our permission. He doesn't have to say, is this okay if I allow this? God can do whatever He wants. He's God. And uh, He doesn't wake up in the morning and scratch His head and say, well, I didn't know that was going to happen today. God knows all things, right? We're all going to face these kinds of difficult situations, trials, and so forth. In fact, in our text in James chapter 5, I want to read verses 7 through 11. It says, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. And let me just say this as we're going through this. This is a different patient that is referenced back in James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where he talks about enduring through the difficult times. This is a little bit different in this context here. But going on, it says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and later rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. And to that we say, Amen. But verse 9 says, Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Well, for a few moments today, I would like to use a few words somewhat interchangeably. Though scripturally, there are some nuances of differences between them. The words trouble, suffering, um, persecution, afflictions. The idea is this. We are all going to go through various aspects of these things. So in just a moment, I want to pray. And then I want to look at some verses that talk about the things that we may go through as a child of God. And I want us to think about it for a moment before we get into this. I don't know what all of us are going through. I know what I face. And I hear from time to time some of the difficult circumstances and, and situations that you go through. But the bottom line is this. No one is exempt from these kinds of things. No one is. And what we do with them and how we respond to them and what we choose to let God do in our lives through them really is a reveal of our true character. Are we trusting in God? Are we saying, God, your will be done and not my own? Because God, if it is my will, I would not want it. I would run from it. So it comes down to, are we willing to surrender? Are we willing to yield our lives? Are we willing to say, God, how do you want me to respond and deal with these things that are in my life right now? And so for a few moments this morning, I'm going to ask all of us to be honest about some things. What is it that we're going through, and how are we dealing with it? Are we saying, God, your will be done, or are we still kicking and fighting and screaming and saying, God, leave me alone, get to, get, help me get rid of this thing, are we going to fight it, or are we going to deal with it with patience? 
and say, God, mold me, make me. You choose to do whatever you want to do with my life. Well, let's look to the Lord and pray for just a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you for the the freedom that we still have here in America to, to study it. And Lord, we know that you left us your word as an example of how to live our life so that we may walk in complete fellowship and obedience to you. So God, work in our hearts this morning. Draw us closer to you. Help us for a few moments this morning to set aside some of the cares and the concerns and Lord, maybe even the things that are occupying our mind, just for a few moments this morning, help us to set them aside so we can concentrate on what you have for us. Lord, be with the children downstairs. I pray, God, that you would speak to their hearts as well and mold and make each and every one of them according to your Son. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for a few moments this morning, I want to just kind of machine gun style go through several verses that talk about the fact that we are going to face difficulties. In fact, this is probably one of the most... I don't know, somewhat humorous verse to some people because of the context of the male-female. I've heard many women laugh about this. It says, but mankind, and some of your translations may say, but man is born for trouble. And all the women always say, amen. But you know, here's the deal. It says, mankind is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. The bottom line is this. We are going to face trouble. No one is exempt from it. Trouble doesn't just pick on a certain social class. Uh, Trouble doesn't just pick on those who are academically smart or those who are academically not as smart. Trouble hits every one of us. It says, surely as sparks fly upward. I don't know about you, but I love sitting. I don't know what it is about a fire. You can sit there and watch it forever. And we sit and watch those sparks go up. I've never seen one go down. It's a natural phenomenon. They go up and they just keep going up until they dissipate into the air. As surely as those sparks go up, mankind will face trouble. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You see, all around the world, there is going to be trouble. There are going to be difficult circumstances. There are going to be situations that you and I would never choose. And Jesus says, in me though, you can have peace. And he says other places, not as the world gives peace, but my peace I give unto you. He says, you're going to face it, but know that you, in me you can find a peace that you need. And he says, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. He says, listen, there is hope. Even though you're going to face difficult situations, even though you're going to go through trials, even though you possibly might be persecuted, you can have hope because I've overcome the world. And we still have to come to this conclusion. Life here on this earth is temporary. Isn't that awesome? If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, and even if we don't, life is eternal. It's either in heaven or hell. But when we know Jesus Christ, we look forward to and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and spending eternity with Him. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it says, Strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue the faith And by telling them, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound real appeasing. By the way, I want to invite you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know that as you are on this journey in following Jesus Christ, you're going to have trouble. Woo! I just want you to be part of that. No. 
You see, what? Because the problems that we face, the trials that we go through, the difficult circumstances, situations that, that God allows in our life, He uses those to mold us and to make us to what? His Son. That's Romans 8, 28 and 29. We kind of don't kind of lump them together sometimes. But to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, if we don't respond right to the things that God allows, well then, yeah, it's just more trouble, more difficult situations. But when we respond correctly, God says, I'm going to turn this situation for good if you trust me enough to love me through it. Just love me enough to trust me. And it will turn out for, for my good. Your good, my glory. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. I mean, think about this. He says, yeah, this suffering that we go through, but guess what? It is temporary. And it cannot be compared to what is to follow when all this is done. We have so much to look forward to. And sometimes we get, as we hear often, the Eeyore complex. Oh, me. Life is just a humdrum. It's, it's boring. It's, you know, I don't know why I exist. And, you know, we all go through times like that. But oftentimes it's when our focus is not right and when we're being distracted by the things of this world. Second thing, he says, don't be entangled with the affairs of this life. When we get bogged down by the things of this world, those things distract us from the things that are most important, right? So we're not to be entangled with the affairs of this life. We're to be focused on what Jesus Christ has for us, living the life that is pleasing to Him. So the sufferings, the things that we go through, cannot compare to what is to follow. 2 Timothy 1.8 So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Instead, share in the suffering for the Gospel, relying on the power of God. When you're going through it, when the suffering is there, he says, don't be afraid of it. He says, in some small way, in some minute, minuscule area, this might be able to allow us to, to somewhat envision or realize or comprehend to some small degree what it is that Jesus Christ went through on the cross for us. And it's nothing in comparison. Trust me. So relying on the power of God to get through it. 2 Timothy 3.12 In fact, all those who want to live godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. And I have to say this. We feel awkward in sharing our faith a lot of times because we're uncertain of how the people that we are talking to are going to respond. Right? Anybody understand that? We have this nervousness, this fearfulness. We have this timidity because we're not sure how it's going to be perceived. We don't have to worry about that if we don't do it. Catch my drift? We don't have to worry about it if we never open our mouth. But when we do open our mouth, we are setting ourselves up to say there is something greater. There is something more. Let the chips fall. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. In other words, we kind of get this idea that as we go through this fiery trial, this ordeal that God allows in my life, that remember God could have in His power and His infinite uh, 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 you know, strength, He could have uh, uh, caused those things to be avoided in our lives, but He allowed them for a purpose, for a reason. And then we get this complex of, well, why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to face this? 
And he says, oh, whoa, wait a minute. Seriously? He says, why do you have this mindset that as if you're the only one going through this? Guess what? I didn't just pick you. <laughs> There's all kinds of people who go through struggles. We're not alone in this. This fire ordeal doesn't just test, come to test me. It tests everyone. He says, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of His glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 Therefore we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. You see, what we go through ultimately can do one of two things. It can destroy us and it can take us down, or it can become a testimony of what God is able to do in and through the struggle. And that's what he's talking about in 2 Thessalonians 1.4. He says your testimony is to be applauded. He says, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. He says, we boast about you. The trial had turned into a testimony of who God is. So, not only on a personal level, but the church will face it as well. In fact, turn your Bibles to to Matthew chapter 5 just for a moment. It's another familiar passage. Someone said a couple weeks ago, he goes, Pastor, you've been preaching through James and you're everywhere but James. Yep, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's part of it. But in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 10, it says this. It says, Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And then he says, Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. See, most of us want the reward here. But, he says this, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're not alone in the things that we go through. The persecution that we may face. Um, In John, chapter 15, almost there, John chapter 15, and verse 20, it says this, Remember the word I spoke to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We're not alone in the struggle. He says, just remember something. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you, and I got through it, and so will you. It'll be okay. But when in the midst of it, it's hard. It's clear from these many passages that difficulty and persecution are inevitable. We learned that back in James chapter 1. He said these things are not going to probably might be there. They will be there. We're going to go through them. And he says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will go through these kinds of things. So how will you respond? I know oftentimes we respond in one of several ways. Um, Sometimes we try to run from the struggle. We run from the trial. We run from the difficult situation that God allows in our life. And I think there's probably no better example than the life of Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Did I really ask you what you really wanted to do, Jonah? I want you to go. Well, I don't want to go. So I think I'll sit down here and pout and cry a little bit. Jonah chose to run from the trial. In fact, it really wasn't a trial in the big picture. It was something that was a matter of obedience. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And I said I want to kind of use these terms loosely for a few moments. We all got to face them. But how we respond to them is important. 
Will we let God work through them and turn it into a testimony of His glory? Or will we, as Jonah did, run from Him? Or we can try to ignore Him. Uh, God has already laid out the plan. He's already taken care of all the, the paperwork. He, he's laid the foundation. And yet, I'm going to ignore the problem as if it's not there. You see, when we have a wrong perspective and, and we're distracted from what God really has for us, then, then the problem is overwhelming. I think of the 12 spies. I want you to go spy out the land that I am what? Giving you. Key words there, is it? He says, I've already given you the land. It's yours. Go check it out. Oh, that sounds great. So they trudge into the land. They're going to go in there and they're going to see all the land. And boy, this is a beautiful land. I mean, the soil is great for farming. The fruit of the land is awesome. I mean, the grapes on these clusters are incredible. I mean, this, this, this place is awesome. But there's giants. There's fortified cities. There's big walls. But I've already given you the land. Didn't matter because to them it was a big problem. But where was their focus? Was the focus on what God already said He was going to do, or was it on the visible of what they could see? You see, it's easy when something's clear as day. But if I have to think through it and wonder how this is all going to play out, then my faith is kind of put into question a little bit, and whether or not I really trust Him through it is questioned a little bit then it becomes too much. So I'm going to run from the problem. Rather than go and tackle the land, I'm just going to stay here in my low comfort zone and just kind of weep and wail and cry and pout and rather than take God at His word. Some people will try to handle them their way. Maybe even retaliate when, when the suffering comes. I don't like it, so I'm going to have this attitude. I don't like it, so I'm going to get, be mad and yell at everybody. I'm going to get angry. I think of Asa. Asa saw God work. And I can remember in Second Chronicles 14 where he said, cries out to God and when the Ethiopians were coming against him. He said, God, it is nothing with you. And he just has total confidence in what God can do. Move on two chapters to the end of chapter 16. All of a sudden there's another army and he's just weak in his faith. And Hanani the seer comes to him and says, Asa, don't you remember what God did? Don't you remember how with the Ethiopians he said, Lord, there's nothing with you, whether with them they have much or with them they don't have much. He said, the bottom line is you can take care of it, God. And, and, but this time you go and offer a bribe? Oh, your dad and my dad, they were buddies, so I'll tell you what, I'll give you all the gold and the silver and the, and the precious metal, and I'll tell you what, you join my team. He got so mad at Hanani for calling him out on this area of sin. He throws him in prison. He retaliated. He said, I don't want to deal with that. Some people just want to try to handle the circumstances in their own way. Well, you get mad? Okay, that's fine. I can get mad. I can get, I can get more mad. You want to yell? I can yell louder. You want to do this? Oh, wait, what I'm going to do. Because vengeance is mine, saith Ken thought. Some of us like to handle the problems in our own way. But what does God want us to do? I think God wants us to try to learn from Him. When God allows the persecution, because you did stand up for your faith and you were ridiculed for it, because God did allow some suffering to come into your life to build up your faith and endurance, when God does allow these trying, difficult circumstances, 
I think what God wants us to do is say, God, what, do you, what is it that you want me to learn from it? God, what is it that you're trying to teach me? God, what is it that you want to accomplish in my life through these things? See, that's the hard one. Because we pray for a life of ease, do we not? When we go on a journey, we say, God, keep us safe. I mean, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. God, keep us healthy. Help us not to get sick. We pray for a life of ease. We're all so used to doing that. But have we ever stopped to think that maybe these are the very things that God is wanting to get our attention with? The fact that you went on that trip and it didn't go well. The fact that you woke up and you didn't feel good. The fact that you had this situation at work and it didn't go as you expected and planned. And God is saying, hello, ding, 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 ding. And we pray, Lord, take care of it. I don't want to deal with any hardship. And God is saying, those are the very things that I'm trying to use in your life. So, have you ever noticed that in many cases, the troubles, difficulties, perhaps even the persecution we face is often brought on by our impatience, our lack of faith or trust, sometimes maybe even our selfishness and pride. Because often in our impatience, we're going to respond the way we want to respond. And when we pray for something and it doesn't happen immediately, then we're going to either find an alternate solution or we're going to make it work somehow. It's so proverbial. I'm going to kick the door in hard as I can because I want to go through that door in life. I'm going to kick it open. I'm going to bust it open. I'm going to put a shoulder into it. And finally, I'm going to get that door open. It might be broken in three spots, but I'm going to get through that doorway. And then we tell our friends, look at this door that God opened for us. God had nothing to do with it. But we bulldozed our way through because, bless God, I wanted to get through that doorway in life. Because we're impatient. And sometimes even disobedient, God's saying, I don't want you to go through that door. I want you to go over here. And this trial was meant to block the door so you couldn't do it. Look at our text here in James chapter 5. We are going to land there, I promise. James chapter 5. And he says, verse 7, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. He says, be patient until the Lord comes. Two thoughts here that I want you to kind of put in the context of what he's saying here. The idea behind this patience is the idea of being patient towards people. Remember I said in James 1, the endurance is more with situations and circumstances. Coming into chapter 5, it's dealing more with people. Anybody ever get impatient with people? Yeah, right. Most of us need to get both hands and a foot, as they say. We get impatient because we want people to respond the way we want them to respond because we want to control circumstances and situations in life. So he says, I want you to be patient until the Lord comes. So the idea of being patient towards those around us. And then the idea behind the coming is the idea of being prepared for his arrival. Now think about this. Um, It's one thing to say, well, I'm going to go to so-and-so's house. Well, when are you going to go? I mean, well, I don't know. They live in Michigan. I'm not really sure when I'm going to get there. Well, if they know when we're going to come, that's one thing. But if we don't know when they're going to come... Well, then that's another. The idea behind the coming is this. There's going to be an arrival. 
of a very important guest. And if we know when the guest is coming, we're going to be prepared for that special arrival. But here's the thing. We don't know when the Lord's going to come. So until that day comes, be prepared for His arrival. Think about that. That changes everything, doesn't it? The fact that we know that Christ is coming and we're to be ready for His arrival, doesn't that change the way we should think? Right? I mean, if you don't care when a guest comes, you don't really clean the house, you don't really clean up, you know, pick up the floor, you don't really vacuum, you don't really do the dishes, you don't really care. But if you're excited about the guest coming and you're prepared for the arrival, you're going to be ready for it. That's what he wants us of us. And this is what James was exhorting his people, the, the hearers of his message. Be prepared for his arrival. So until he comes, in the context of what he's saying, you're going to have to be patient with people, and you're going to have to keep being patient with people, and keep being patient with the circumstances, and keep being patient, and be prepared for when the Lord comes. Be ready for his arrival. And then he gives us a couple of examples. As a farmer, where's the rain? I don't know about you, but in order for the farmer to wait for rain... If you've ever lived in a farming community, my first church was in a farming community. We had corn stalks on three sides of our house. And uh, it was awesome. I enjoyed it. But one thing I learned about farming is that in order for to be ready for the rain, the farmer has to do some work before the rain gets there, right? You say, well, farmers only work a couple months out of the year. <laughs> Guess again. Yeah, I mean, they're preparing the soil and they're putting fertilizer in the ground and then they're planting the seed and they're disking it up. And I mean, you think there's a lot that goes into it. But what happens if a farmer procrastinates? He doesn't disc the soil. He doesn't get the fertilizer in. He doesn't get the plants or the seeds in the ground in season. And then all of a sudden all the rain comes. Well, in northern Indiana, I know a lot of times if they get out too late and the rains start coming, it's nothing but a mud field. And they lose the window of opportunity. And that's true of a lot of places. Farm soil is typically pretty moist and mucky. But he's got work to do before the rain comes. And he's working hard so that when it gets there, he's ready for the rain. And he says that's how we're to wait and be patient. As if we're anticipating the Lord's coming. And until he comes, we're going to stay faithful. And we're going to work. And we're going to be prepared for when he gets here. And then he says... As his arrival draws close, there's another whole concept. People are setting dates and times and time frames, and no one knows the day nor the hour, but the bottom line is his coming has to be drawing near. So as I'm waiting here, look at our text here, verse 7. It says, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rain? You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. So he says, how are we to be patient? Well, as a farmer waits for the fruit and the rain, as his arrival draws close, and as I'm waiting, I strengthen my heart. What does that mean? To strengthen our own hearts. Be patient until the Lord comes, but to strengthen our heart until that happens. Um, I don't know about you, but trials are wearing. Difficult situations, persecutions weigh heavy on your mind, do they not? Um, I think of David and some of the difficult situations he went through. 
Um, I think of um, as David was going out and about and as he prepared for everything that was happening. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and following, he's got everybody in Saul's armor, army chasing him. He's going through the countryside, and he's hiding in the thickets, and he's hiding in the caves, and he's, you know, he gets he has nothing else left to do. And the whole story from First Samuel chapter 18 all the way to First Samuel chapter 30, it's a beautiful story. You got to read it sometime. It's exciting. But he gets to the end of it. He is worn out. He's he's dead tired. He's been through situations that are just difficult to, to bear and to handle. And he has nothing left to do. And so he joins in the back of the Philistine army and the front of the leaders look back and say, isn't that David? Why, why is he here? What if he turns on us? I mean, you would know the reputation of David. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has ten thousands. What if he turns on us? He can't, he can't do this. You've got to tell him to leave our army. He can't walk with us. And David has nothing else to do in life. 1 Samuel 29 and 30. He goes back home. You know what it's like. You go home, and it's gone. Some of you that have had to travel for years because of your work, you've spent many a night in a motel room. And it gets to a point, it doesn't matter how nice the motel is, it can't compare it to home. Yeah, well, David's had a lot of rough nights in caves and thickets and brush and everything else, and he just wants to go home. But home is burned. It's gone. And David has this small band of men who have just teamed up with him. They've been through, through everything thick and thin with him. And he's just beside himself because now it's not just his family gone. All these men and their family and possessions and homes are gone. And they all turn on David and said, this is your fault. And then they spoke of stoning him. And David doesn't really know what to do with the circumstance. Until you get down to verse 6 of chapter 30. He says, David encouraged himself, and the Lord is God. You see, that's why he says in verse 8, strengthen your hearts. There's going to be a lot of times in life when you can't pick up the phone and say, Hey, Joe, I'm going through this difficult time. What What do you think I should do? Hey, you know, whatever, whoever your best friend is, they're not going to be there. What do you do? What we should have done in the first place. Get on our knees and get with God. This is David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened his heart by drawing close to God. And that's where the answer is. That's where we're going to find the hope. I've spent too much time on that point, but he says, as Jesus' coming is drawing close, strengthen your heart in this. Acts 1, 9 through 11 says, And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you may have seen him going into heaven. Bottom line is, he says, don't just stand here. This goes right on with the context of James 5. Stay faithful until I come. Be patient until I come. 
Don't stop. Romans 13, 12. The night is nearly over and the daylight is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What are we saying here? The day is coming when the Lord is going to draw nigh. Hebrews 10.25, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other all the more as you see what? The day drawing near. We don't know when that day is, but we're to stay faithful until that day. Matthew 24. Um, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 24. I said I'm going to be flying around this morning and I apologize. If you need to, you just look under the screen and I'll keep moving along. Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, it says this. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jump down to verse 36. It says, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. The two men will be in the field and one will be taken on the w- and one left. Two women will be grinding in the mill and one will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert since you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this. If the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. He says that day is coming. There is going to be a time. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7, it says this. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials. So that in the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though will be refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. What you're going through is temporary. And it's all for the praise of His glory. Everything we do is for the praise of His glory. 1 John 3, 3 talks about it. Bottom line is this. Troubles are temporary. Eternity is forever. Think about that. The troubles that we go through, the trials, the difficulties, the persecution, it's all temporary. It's just for a time. But eternity is forever. Well, in the last part of James, number two, be positive towards your brother. Um, oh, but that's hard for some people. Sometimes people just rub us the wrong way. Ever been around someone like that? How do you respond? How do you deal with that? Well, it says, verse 9, Brothers, do not complain about one another, so that you not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. We're not to complain. We're not to murmur. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says this, Be kind and compassionate one to another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ Jesus. We're to be kind to one another. Do not be fooled. God is the judge. It's easy for many people to judge. In fact, I think it's the nature of most people. In fact, God's Word reminds us that man looks on the outward appearance. And because of that, judging takes place. But God is the real judge. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. God is the judge. 
First Peter 4, verse 5, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Second Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat. A different nuance. But we're all going to stand there. Romans chapter 14.10 says, why do you look down on your brother? God is the judge. And in First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, one more verse I want to highlight. says this, Therefore don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And this is awesome. And then praise will come to each one from God. God will praise man. Isn't that an amazing concept? God is the judge. So he says, don't, don't be rude to your brother. Be positive. And then number three, be persevering in your trials. In the end of James 5, verse 10 and 11, it says this. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Well, consider the character of Job. Have you ever, if you've never taken the time to read through the book of Job, I'd encourage you to do that. But very quickly, turn over to Job chapter 1. Right before the biggest book in the Bible there in Psalms, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Job chapter 1. Job is an amazing man. Um, Verse 8 says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. What an amazing man Job must have been. But jump down to verse 22. Verse 22 says this. Through all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Job did not sin or blame God for anything. What an example. He went through trials. I mean, can you imagine having some beautiful friends like Job had, those three buddies that just encouraged him and uplifted him every, at every turn? Not the case, was it? I mean, everybody needs a Bildad and an Eliphaz and, you know, guys who would just say, Hey, way to go, Job. You're doing everything right. Just keep going. No, they kicked him while he was down. And despite all the negative around him, he just stayed faithful. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, You speak as a foolish woman speak, speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Through all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job just had a, an attitude of character. He did what was right in every circumstance. Job chapter 13, and verse 15, he says, Even if he kills me, I will hope in him, and I will still defend my ways before him. Why? Because he wanted to walk in obedience. Despite the trials, despite the circumstances, despite the difficulties, the persecution of his buddies, he said, though he kill me, I will still defend my ways before him. He's God. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. Think of Moses in Exodus chapter 17, verse 4. 
and all the circumstances he wanted to... I mean, can you imagine having to be Moses and do everything he had to do and to try to keep a couple million people happy? <laughs> no, thank you. Um, I wouldn't want it for myself. But Moses was given a hefty load to deal with. Um, I think of David. He had to deal with Saul, as we already talked about. Elijah, he had to deal with, ah- deal with Ahab. Um, there's all kinds of people. God's word is full of people who had to deal with circumstances that were less than desirable. But it's amazing. He says, consider Job. Turn over to Job chapter 42. We're almost through. Job chapter 42. Look at verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, those buddies that were encouraged of him all the time, the Lord restored his prosperity and what? Doubled his previous possessions. All his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to his house and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him uh, a casita, a gold earring. So the Lord blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first. He owned 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, his second Keziah, and his third Kirnhapak. No woman as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land. And their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation then Job died, old and full of days. So what's, what's, what's the situation here? Why, why does he mention Job? Well, in James chapter 5, verse 11, you've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. What was Job's outcome? Because he stayed faithful. Because he stayed obedient. Because he had the right perspective through the adversity, through the trial, through the persecution. God blessed him for it. Now, is that to say that if God takes something away from my life, he's going to bring it back double? No. That's God's prerogative. He's a sovereign God who can do whatever he wants, right? Right? God doesn't have to give us anything back. If he takes it away, he's probably got a reason for taking it away. If he gives it to us, he's probably got a reason for giving it to us. But he's God and he can do whatever he wants. But here's the deal. When we stay faithful and have the right attitude and the mindset that God has asked us to have through the trial, and we're faithfully obedient until he comes, he says, look at Job. Job went through it all. He handled it right. And he said, I blessed him for it. I think the principle is clear. God will bless obedience. I have to believe that. It may not be what I want, but it'll probably be a whole lot better because God knows what's best for me. Amen? He knows what's best. So not only that, he says, consider the character of Job, but also consider the character of our Lord. And he gives us two examples of his character. The Lord is what? Compassionate and merciful. Isn't that awesome? I'm thankful for those two factors. Because if 
I got what I deserved in this life because I'm a sinner just like all of you. If we got what we deserved in this life, it would not be compassion. It would not be mercy. I'm just telling you. If all of us got what we deserved, we would be spending eternity in hell, in a lake of fire. Because he says all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. It says in Jeremiah that the heart is deceptively wicked. Who can know it? If we got what we deserved, it would not be compassion and it would not be mercy. But because God is compassionate, I think of guys like David again. And David was not a good man at times in his life. Who would commit adultery with another man's wife because she's bathing on a rooftop and then lie with her and conceive a child? And then God would turn around and say, he's a man after my own heart. That's a God of mercy. That's a God of compassion. That's a God who gives second chances. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God is long-suffering. I'm thankful that God is forgiving. The least of it, he says, consider his character, that he's compassionate and he's merciful. And once again, there's a dozen other examples of that in Scripture. I want to close with us looking at a passage, a couple of passages in Psalms. The last ones we'll ask you to turn to. Psalm 86. Psalm 86 and verse 7. It says, I call on you in the day of my distress, for you will answer me. What a God who will answer us in our struggles, in our trials. He's an awesome God who knows us, knows our needs. But He's a God of mercy and compassion. That's the God that I serve. That's the God that loves me. That's the God who died for me. Psalm 85, verse 7 says, Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. Over and over, He's a God of mercy, a God of compassion. A God of love. Psalm 111, verse 4. He has caused His wonderful works to be remembered. And the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Psalms is full. We don't have the time to go through 25 other verses that talk about the fact that He is merciful and gracious. Over and over, we understand that God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. So what is he telling here? He's reminding, he's exhorting these people. And you remember, all the way back from James chapter 1, this scattered group who've had to go to another land and start all over again and reestablish themselves in the faith and, and to, just to keep going forward and not to be bogged down by the struggles and the trials of everything that took place in the past. He's reminding them of one more principle in their life. You're going to face difficulties. You're going to face trials. Perhaps even persecution. Not only towards circumstances, James 1, but towards people, James 5. And he says, I want you to be patient. Until I arrive, you make ready for my arrival. You be patient. As patient as you need to be until... The rain comes until I appear. You make ready. 
Don't complain about your brother. Don't be grumbling one to another. Remember, I'll judge that. I'm in control of that department. Get a little bit weary in well-doing. Just consider Job. I blessed him because he was faithful and obedient. And I'm a God of mercy and compassion. Just, Just stay faithful. Stay obedient. I don't know about you, but it seems like it's most difficult to be faithful and obedient when our eyes are not on the Savior. Last example, and I close. Remember Peter walking on the water? Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out to you. Peter's like, you know, got open mouth, insert foot syndrome. You know, he's always the one that's, you know, causing the ruckus and, you know, saying weird things. And, okay, come on, Peter. Peter steps out and starts walking. And just about then, he sees a big wave. And he looks at the wave, and what happens? <laughs> Sinkhole in the middle of the ocean. No. He starts to sink. But when did the problem come? When he took his eyes off of Jesus. When are our struggles, our trials, our disappointments, our persecutions, when is it most difficult to handle? When our eyes are not on what? Right. I think we should learn from these things. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He says, if you do that, I'll bless in the end. And everything you go through is just temporary. We have something greater coming. And that's what we look forward to. That's our hope. Amen? Let's pray.